Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. I'm Jim White, and today myself and Simon spoke about Newcastle kicking Manchester City out of the League Cup. Have they shown that to beat them, you shouldn't be afraid to smash them? FIFA's new agent regulations will go to a tribunal. Have football agents had it too good for too long, or are they right to go down swinging? UEFA start opening the door to Russia once more. Do kids of all nationalities have a right to play the game in spite of geopolitical conflicts? We speak to Ian Byrne, Labour MP for Liverpool West Derby, after he urges the FA to call for Alexander Seferin to consider his position as UEFA president due to mounting concern about alleged cronyism and safety deficiencies following the 2022 Champions League final in Paris. And we're joined in studio by Chief Exec of boxer Ben Shalom as we build up to Caroline Dubois' return to the ring live on TalkSport this Saturday night against Magali Rodriguez. Rodriguez. This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. You know, it is often said it was a game of two halves, but Simon, last night at St James's Park, it really was, mate, mm. to be honest. I watched it, I don't know if you tuned in for the whole thing. I couldn't believe how dominant City were in the first half and, and, and not to be fully in the driving seat mm. at the break. And then Newcastle... Goodness only knows what a change in a team. They came out, got it by the scruff of the neck yep. and went toe-to-toe like like Fury Wilder and went for them. Yeah, well, that was very similar. Not not quite as similar, but there was a similarity between the way Tottenham played Manchester United earlier on in the season mm. when Man United had lots of opportunities in the first half and they were the dominant side. Yeah, in the first 15 minutes, 20 minutes of the second half when Spurs played Man United, they went after them. Um, and Newcastle playing at home... Um, should be in that situation. Yeah, Both sides yeah. made a lot of changes. Both sides weren't playing their, you know, predominant first eleven, but there was still enough talent on that pitch to, you know, to to merit a significant encounter. And Newcastle have landed 
another victory. Which yeah. then, you know, obviously we had this little wobble three games where a lot of that could be qualified because they were playing top opposition, one of them being Man City, another being Liverpool. The Liverpool situation obviously was a challenge for them because everyone felt once Liverpool went down to ten men, this was a game that was going to be Newcastle's for the taking and That's Liverpool right. showed a very different characteristic That's to come right. back from it. Yeah. So yes, a great result for Newcastle. Yeah, I mean I I think now it shows incidentally Joe Linton. What has he become? Yeah. I mean, my goodness, he can mix it up in, in the middle of the pitch. Is it time for opponents, Simon, really, to stop respecting Manchester City? Because if you stand staring at them thinking, cheese, this is Pep City, before you know where you are, you get dominated by them. That's exactly what Newcastle didn't do in the second half. Well, I mean, look, the art, the element of taking someone on at their own game... And, and having a go, I mean, I'm, I'm always a front foot person, but there is also a reality about certain things. I think you should be aware of the opposition. I don't think you should be um, cowed by them. I don't think you should be intimidated. And once upon a time, people used to talk about going out to Anfield and being beaten before they got on the pitch of that great Liverpool side of the 70s and 80s with the soonesses of the world in the side. And I've always felt that was, you know, an, a, you know, an, an inveterate weakness in people. There is an element of understanding who your opposition is and respecting the principles of what they can bring to the table. There's also an opposition, also a school of thought which says the best form of defence is attack. But with sides like Man City, who are so proficient in what they do, you can't just allow yourself to get in a game where you're playing to their strengths. So, look, the bottom line is is that Newcastle are, are, are a decent side. And this Manchester City side that played them, you know, in this cup competition isn't the first 11, doesn't yeah. have their predominant players in there. So it's a... <laughs> It's a great result for Newcastle. It's it's a it's a shot in the arm for Eddie Howe's perceived inability to overcome Guardiola. Oh, it's his first. Uh, yeah, it's his yeah. first ever win over them. I mean, the question really is: Have Newcastle shown that to beat City, you shouldn't be afraid to smash them? And certainly, that was Pep's thinking post-match. Today we were there. We make a brilliant first half, and of course, for the way we play. I think Newcastle could not accept. They increased the rhythm, the aggressivity, and the kicking, and they were there, more aggressive. We struggled a little bit, but it was normal. I said, uh, time, so we'll not be the second half than the first, so we have to be there in the bad moment. We were there, and I mean, at the end, we could not win with the crowd. And yeah, as I said, congratulations, Newcastle, for also. The kicking. Little yeah, psyche dig there. A little bit, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I, I suspect people, you know, Guardiola thinks that opposition are just going to let Manchester City do what they want. And there's a physical side of the game. It's been diminished over the years, which I'm saddened about, because whilst I like the offensive nature of football and the fact that it's about creativity rather than destruction, I also think there's a physical side of the game where you let the opposition know that you're there. And it's the referee's job to determine whether people are stepping across the line. His team are pretty proficient at putting it about as well. Rodri's no shrinking violet. <laughs> right. So the fact of the matter is Newcastle fronted them up yeah. and said, right, we'll have some of you then. We're at home. Yeah. We fancy ourselves in this game, so we're going to make you beat us, not let you beat us. Yeah. And the result of it was that they got a 1-0 win. I, I don't want to be disrespectful to City or their fans, but is this good for the game? That here's a trophy City aren't going to win. N not really, because I think the best should win, whichever tournament they participate in. I'm not really that worried about the idea that monopolies are created, dynasties are cast. We've not got a league 
like the Bundesliga. Everything goes in cycles. I don't know if Liverpool's dominance of football and Man United's dominance of football during certain periods of the 70s and 80s for Liverpool and the 90s and 2000s for Man United harmed English football. No. It just created a, a, a platform for other teams to have the ambition to get better, to look at something. Because apparently in society, according to certain, facts, certain factions of society, you need to see something before you can be it. Right? So if other sides are seeing what uh, United or City have become... Then they raise the bar. So I wouldn't if they'd have won all four and they'd have deserved to win all four, I wouldn't be sitting there saying, Oh, this is a worry for English football. I'd be saying, So what are you guys prepared to do? Because Man City aren't able now just to simply spend enormous amounts of money and, and do what they've done in the past. Neither are Chelsea. There's slightly more teeth in the governance because mm. you can see it. So now you've got to raise the game. Better coaching, better players, better disciplines. Um, you know, better management, better overall thinking, and and Man City won't dominate forever. No, true. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't have sat here true. if they'd have done all four. I'd have gone. Well, it's something that hasn't been done before. Yeah. Well, if they do all four right. every year, yeah, then you're going to go. Oh God, what's yeah. happening here? Well, now Newcastle having got rid of City. Play the holders, Manchester United. Yeah. So uh, it's a repeat of the final, gonna, of course. If they win this cup, they're going to win it on, on bloody merit, aren't they? Because yeah. the games they're having to play. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Simon, agents. Agents. Yeah. Um, the late Mino Raiola, when he was alive, you and Mino used to have a real joust on this show, did you yes, not? Yes. And Raiola made it quite clear. I do the best job I can possibly do for my client. In the process... Well, I was getting paid if, by everybody else to do it. If I happen to make millions out of it, then tough. I make millions out of it. And he really used to push back at you when you were on live with him. Well, it he was to, very he, entertaining He used to stuff. push back against the ridiculous assertion that he wasn't the captain of division. Yeah. And whilst telling everyone, whilst engineering a situation where Paul Pogba was constantly in a situation of division because he knew that he was going to make money from Pogba's move. So his ridiculous argument that I don't create division was was always debunked by me. Well, of course, well, now... he wasn't sulking putting the phone down. It's a different world for agents because they've got to pass an exam now if they're to continue to operate That's as well as changes to rules concerning the representation of multiple clients yep. in a transaction and the representation of minors and the capping of agents' fees. Now, that has really got them. Hang on is. a second. <laughs> Everything else is fine. Hang on a second. Take our money away. We used to earn fortunes. Now you're going to cap our fees. So, at the moment, they are putting up one hell of a fight. They're not having it. They're Please. going to a tribunal and it's going to come to the FA versus agents. They're going to suck it out. The man who used to look after Mesut Ozil, amongst others, is Erkut Sogut. And he was speaking recently about how unfair things have got. You sign a player, 16, 17-year-old. You look after the player for four or five years, giving the player boots, going to the games, train ticket, flight ticket, everything, helping out, needs a doctor, spending money for five years. And then it comes to a deal and the club says, yeah, only 3%. And you have to pay tax on that. And you probably work with another agent on that deal as well. So you split the commission into one and a half, you pay tax on that. And then FIFA says, yeah, you have to survive with that. And then imagine your player signs with a League One team or championship, League One, League Two in the beginning, right? Young player, there's not much money. So the first time for that young player, you may probably make money is a second pro contract, not the first one. And that will take five to six years of investment of time and energy. And then they tell me, you're only eligible to get 3%. How is that possible? Okay. Has he got a point? Has he got a point? Um, 
I heard you mumbling throughout it. Yeah, I find it difficult to have any empathy. On one hand, you're saying that you sign a player and you've created this player and it's all down to you and you got them the boots and you gave them this and you gave them that and then you're splitting that payment with someone else. So either you're running this agent's, this player's career or you're not. Look, they've had it too good for too long. It's the football's fault. They they, they, they deregulated. When the, when all the money came in, it seems to me that all the rules just got rescinded. You, you couldn't represent more than one entity. You couldn't represent the buying club, selling club and the player once upon a time. And then the more money went to football, then you can represent everything. And then you can represent their Aunt Matilda as well, if you want to, in the equation. The bottom line is, is that the agents can get paid what they want on their clients. But the only people that don't pay them are the people they represent. Where I do have some empathy for them, and it's deep down at the very bottom of the barrel, is if you I engage an agent to sell a player for you, and they are and they are developing a transfer fee, I do think there should be an element of you can pay them what you think that's worth in terms of if you think it's if you want to get fifty million pounds for a player and people are only bidding thirty five and they're able to create a situation where they get fifty million, it should be the football club's choice to some extent how much commission they might pay that agent. So I do get a degree of empathy right, around got you in that. But yeah, as far as yeah. what they're getting from from the players, well first and foremost, why don't you get the players to pay you themselves? Because they don't. They load it upon the football clubs. And that's like no other industry, every other industry in the world. The entertainment industry, you engage an agent, you pay your agent. The, 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 the housing market, you want your house sold, you pay the estate agent. And on and on we go. This ridiculous argument that somehow it's landed at the feet yeah. of the football clubs to pay the agents a, 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 a percentage of a player's salary. When they come up with this ridiculous argument, like, well, you know, it's before tax. Everybody pays tax. Everybody pays money out of their net proceeds. That's how the world works. Why has football got this preposterous, immature notion that the ideals behind it are that they should be different to everybody else and that everybody else should pay for it? And the agents now have been brought into line mm. because they have created division in football. I do make this observation that if you follow the corruption in football, most of the time you'll find it seated in, this, in, the, in the areas of football agency and their ideals and what who their, whose mind they So you think they've had it too good too long. Now yeah, they're trying but to it's, buy but themselves it's football's time. Full, but it's football's fault. Football allowed it. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. We make no apology for some of the um, the, the tough issues in uh, the game that we have to address and we want to address. And this is another one. Uh, it's Jim White and Simon Jordan. We're live in Talk Sport. UEFA, Simon, are the right to start opening the door to Russia once more. We know what's coming here. Uh, UEFA announced uh, the beginning of the end of Russia's 19-month blanket ban from European football. Um, what are they trying to do here? They, they are suggesting that kids of a certain age should now have the right to play in uh, European competitions around Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and I'm talking Russian kids. Are UEFA right to start opening the door to Russia once again? Do they have a point? Um, the FA have decided that England youth groups will not take part in any matches against Russian national teams, although UEFA have decided to readmit Russian teams back into European competition at junior level. Yeah. It's a very difficult and it's a very sensitive conversation, this, because UEFA, UEFA would argue and do argue that children should not be punished for the actions uh, taken by their government, by their leaders. Their country's leader, Putin, chose to invade Ukraine mm -hmm. illegally. But the fact of the matter is, 
UEFA say it's not fair that Russian kids should suffer as a result of non-participation in and around Europe because of their leaders' actions, decisions. What the country does politically shouldn't reflect on what the kids do in a sporting sense. Where do you stand on this? Um, do well, they do they deserve the right to play in competitions around Europe? Well, I, I stand in a, in, a, in a slightly challenged position because I've always maintained the view that I don't like world politics, geopolitics, finding its way into sport. Yet I do understand the reasons why there was a necessity in certain scenarios, like the situation in the Ukraine uh, war with Russia or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that there needs to be a perhaps a cohesive and coordinated outlook towards the way that the Russian society is being ostracised as a result of their actions. This is a very complicated situation in this war. I'm not going to rehearse it for the benefit of other people. There are two sides to this particular argument, but there is... There is people dying in Ukraine. There is a, a, a very tragic set of circumstances. Ukrainian children are dying. So I have to say that my empathy for Russian children not being able to play in tournaments doesn't find a great deal of fertile ground for that. I'm not entirely sure why UEFA would want to do this to open this hornet's nest. If they're suggesting that the children aren't responsible for the actions of the adults, then why aren't they suggesting that people that have no support, no relationship with Putin, don't even live in the Russian country anymore, why would they have been so hard on immutable things like passports being the only reason that um, people were excluded from playing, like Victoria Azarenka, excluded from playing for Wimbledon and vilified as a result of her once um, uh, uh, living in Belarus and obviously having a Belarus passport. Then you've got this argument that I suspect that most of the Western nations are going to resist it. If we've got RFA... The English FA are saying they will. Well, they won't be the only ones. Well, Sweden are the host of next year's Women's European Under-17 Championships, and they're saying no to the Russians coming. Well, the Scandinavians will definitely be in that place. Yeah. And so will the Norwegians. Poland have said no. Yeah, so you're, you're creating... I don't know what you're trying to achieve here. Are you trying to put yourself in a position where there's an element of virtue signalling about the nature of how UEFA are prepared to operate and then suggest that it's the individual federations underneath them that have put you in a position. UEFA wanted to operate this way. They wanted to not penalise the youth of Russia through the actions of others, but ultimately the federations that UEFA govern are not prepared to have Russia participate at any level. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. This is a story that doesn't go away. There is still a lot of anxiety and concern after what happened in the 2022 uh, Champions League final in Paris uh, if you cast your mind back to that the two teams on show that day Liverpool and Real Madrid thousands of fans at the match at the uh, Stade de France suffered a failed safety management operation hours of static queues dangerous policing and uh, some of the fans as they were hanging around the, 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 the Stade de France area were actually attacked by local thugs I mean, it really was the Wild West that night and a review panel appointed by UEFA to inquire into the disaster made 21 recommendations for future improvement. It was an absolute mess from top to bottom. But uh, the Labour MP for Liverpool and West Derby, Ian Byrne, is still not letting this go because uh, Ian is still saying those at the top of UEFA should still pay for what happened on that night. Ian joins us live. Ian, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Simon. Morning. Uh, Ian, am I right? If I cast my mind back, you and I have spoken before on this show. You were there, right? You you, you were there. You're a Liverpool fan. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Liverpool season ticket all the year. I was there, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we go into what you're after now, regards Seferin and one of his sidekicks, Zelko Pavlika, who is UEFA's head of safety and security, give us a flavour briefly, albeit briefly, of your rec- of your recollections of that night. Well, you, you talked about getting attacked by local folks. We got attacked by the local police as well, Jim. Uh, tear gas, uh, children tear gas, disabled fans tear gas. It was a complete and utter disaster uh, of an operation from both the French security, uh, the police uh, and UEFA. Uh, and it was only the Liverpool fans actually stopped it becoming potentially a bigger disaster than Hillsborough with that many lives that could have been lost. So that sort of encapsulates... Uh, what happened that night and why uh, we're still so angry about it now. Okay, so the latest chapter in this story, am I right, is that you have written to the FA. What have you said and what do you want? So in light of David Conn's uh, article, uh, the fantastic journalist from The Guardian who does so much to uncover uh, injustices in football, uh, what we've actually seen is that the head of security, uh, Pavlika, who was actually... Put there by Sephron, uh, he's a long-term friend, totally unfit for the job. 
it was actually in the VIP room till 8.45, when for hours outside, as I said, his scenes were just going to lead to deaths. That was the man who was responsible, ultimately, for overlooking uh, security. Uh, and he was a complete dereliction of duty. He wasn't anywhere to be seen. So, obviously, you know, we pushed for him to have some accountability and Stefan to actually, uh, you know, who took that decision to to put him in place, which potentially, potentially Jim, that could have cost hundreds of lives. You know, I feel, I genuinely feel that this scandal, because it is a scandal uh, that he was put in position and the cronyism in UEFA is equal to what we see with FIFA. You know, and it just, I, and, and what we've asked for within the letter to the FA is the FA, as a part of the Confederation of UEFA, it should be pushing for huge accountability from Sefron and also to ensure that the head, the former head of security, shouldn't be anywhere near UEFA. And right. Obviously, so that's what we're asking. You, you, what you're you're saying, amongst other things, is that Selko uh, Pavlika, UEFA's head of safety and security, while it was all kicking off in and around the stadium, uh, he was sitting in the VIP suite doing next to nothing about it. Um, you, you're saying that. Uh, Seferin should be considering his own position. You're saying that Pavlika should be considering their own position. You want them both out. That's a short and the tall of it, Ian, right? Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, the book stops with them. Jim, the parallels with Hillsborough are absolutely uncanny. They're uncanny. Uh, you know, what we're seeing with the dereliction of duty, then the smears and the lies against Liverpool fans to cover up their own culpability. Within David Conn's article, we've actually got evidence between heads of departments within UEFA basically he's getting told to cover up for Pavlika's, uh, you know, failures. And for me, that goes to the heart of it. How can you wait for change if it, if it's trying to cover up the culpability of individuals that weren't fit for purpose? That could have led to hundreds of people dying at a football match again. And then what they did to make it worse was try and use the Hillsborough play- playbook of smears, lies, uh, to, to obviously tarnish the Liverpool supporters, which thankfully has been ripped down. Uh, you know, when we won, I think we won that battle to acknowledge where the. I don't, but uh, I don't think that's now. what they. I don't think they were using the Hillsborough playbook. Or I think they were they were looking at self-preservation. Ian, when you look at this situation, uh, Simon, you... Simon, just on that, how, how were they using the Hillsborough playbook? Because well, they, because I don't, they I don't suppose that they were that looking at the tragedy of Hillsborough. And seeing it as an opportunity to smear Liverpool fans, I think they were probably more in self-preservation mode and probably more about trying to, to move themselves the out of the way. You used the same playbook, Simon. It was absolutely true. Yeah, I know, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with fans. you, Ian. I understand yeah, the history. Simon, is, is Ian not right to the extent that the finger was pointed by some of the yes. authorities at some of the I, Liverpool I, fans I, who were totally I, blameless no, 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 on the you're night? You're missing my point. I absolutely understand that. But the indexing of it back to Hillsborough, as if it was somebody looking at Hillsborough saying, well, look what they did over here, we can do the same thing, I think is a reach. I think absolutely the outcome of suggesting that, in fact, it was the fans, and Liverpool fans specifically that were the problem, is not right, and I think it's more to do with their trying to find a self-preservation rather than looking back at a tragedy and and, and using that as a playbook because it hasn't played out very well because that playbook has shown people to be culpable and ultimately accountable for what happens. So that's not a playbook that anyone would want to replicate. But I go on to the next part of the question is, do you understand the process of when you wafer commission someone to put on something what the process is that they are supposed to be going on at the time whose responsibility is to do what when and why so that's a really really good point and that's part of the 21 
point plan, what we put forward with UEFA, is to ensure that there is that accountability. Because if you recall, after the final, Simon, UEFA, uh, the police were uh, blaming Liverpool fans, UEFA were blaming Liverpool fans. Within the report, UEFA have blamed the French police. So at the end of the day, for me, the accountability of putting a major final on in that city lies with UEFA. Oh, I understand that, but do you understand the current... I understand who's responsible ultimately, in the same way that if something happens in this country, the Prime Minister's responsible. But what I'm suggesting to you is, do you understand the process of what UEFA currently do? Because I understand it. I understand that there's not enough resource within UEFA because they outsource these, these particular events to people that bid and put themselves forward to be able to host and provide the mm. environment. And yeah. you would have thought that people like the Stade de France that have done these events as a matter of course, that are still having the same challenges at a different level in the Rugby World Cup, would have been able to provide the prerequisite amount of event management I get that, that Simon. UEFA wanted. What, what Ian is saying, correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, that on the night, Zalko Pavlika, UEFA's head of safety and security, did not live up to his job but, title. But, but, hang on, that's optics. What would you have him have done? How's it optics? Because <laughs> head of <laughs> safety and security. He was sitting no, in the no, VIP no, 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 you've got you've got an event that's gone out of control. He was in the VIP until he's forty-five. While Liverpool fans were getting tear No, I understand. I understand. I understand the picture. I understand the picture you're painting, Ian. I don't particularly like politicians get involved with sport for their own reasons. But let me finish my point. The optics of of it are that at, at, he's in the Ooh. VIP. That's the bit that we want to take away because ultimately, what would you have had him have done? The event was being managed by the stadium managers that are there that are failing in their duty. UEFA doesn't have enough resource and and they and they are weak in their in their event management. So we all accept that. But what would you have this guy get, have done? Get the, out the VIP and, suite and start acting like and the head of safety okay. and security and done what? Absolutely, Start coordinating some safety and security around a shambles Absolutely. outside the by event. By doing what? Just so I'm clear, by, by doing, doing what? what he's, by doing what he's paid well, for. By do, well, okay, Ian, tell me what security. that is then. You've got, you've, got, you've got something that's gone out of control. You've got the people that are not managing it properly. You've got the police that are not behaving properly. You've got one individual. What would you have him do? Well, presumably, he has a level of expertise in that he is... UEFA's head of safety and security. Start acting like it. But at that time, Absolutely. I'm not. I'm not giving excuses to him. I'm not suggesting this is right. What I'm saying is, is what would you have Simon, him do I, at that? Just... The event's gone. The planning. The, the right. whole situation's out of control. Yeah. One man being there is going to make bugger all difference. The bottom line is, right, the planning for it should have been there in the first place. Ian, would you not have started yeah, coordinating yeah. some kind of tidy up of the whole damn yeah. mess? Yeah. Well, hang on, let me come in on this. Because if you look at the evidence, what Con's report said, some of his team didn't even turn up for the pre-briefings. So he didn't do his job from the get-go, Sam. Agreed. Have been the whole I, point, I agree with the that. The whole point of this is, he shouldn't have been in the position as head and safety of UEFA with 100,000 supporters under his jurisdiction. And his job is to keep them safe. He's sitting in a VIP box. His own evidence... To late 45, when he should have been outside, because them scenes were taking place from 5.30. They delegated, Ian, that's my point. My point is, is UEFA, my point is, UEFA delegates. UEFA delegates. What they do is they go to the event management business and say to them, which is in this instance... Yeah, but Simon, somebody's in charge. 
I, and the I head agree. of safety and I security agree. is Pavlika. So he's in charge because Seferin put him there. I agree. It's like suggesting, OK, by that logic, Sadiq Khan should be drop-kicked out of London because yes. of the policing situation yes. around the European Championships. But it doesn't happen that but way. But that's why Sadiq Khan is under pressure this morning, as you and I both know. Ian, I think you... You you would go as far as to say is there's cronyism here because Seferin and Pavlika are very tight. They're good mates. But you, are you suggesting that Seferin is protecting Pavlika and Pavlika's position? Right. So, yeah, 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 that's absolutely it. But I think there's a bigger fundamental point here. The Football Association, along with other football associations across Europe, make up UEFA. It's a confederation of football associations. So what we're saying is... Those usually powerful voices should be reforming UEFA from within. We've got the 21-point plan, but they should be doing far more to call out failings. Now, Stephens failed. He failed the Liverpool and Real Madrid supporters. The Manchester City supporters had a terrible time in Istanbul when the same man was still in charge. Of yeah. safety, even after the battle of Paris in 22. He presided so, under well, a, over a series of shambles. Yeah. Accountability, Jim. Accountability. And our football association has got a huge part to play in driving that accountability. And I've asked them to do it. We've had a statement this morning, Ian, just before we came on air. We got this at 10 to 10 from the FA. We've made it very clear that we support the recommendations of the independent report into the treatment of Liverpool and Real Madrid fans at the Champions League final in Paris 2022. And that what happened in Paris must never happen again. Now, that's fine. But what you're saying is, yeah, all right, that's one thing, but we want heads to roll. If not Seferin, certainly Pavlika. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to pick up on a point, Simon, about the Hills for Playbooth. We now know that the policing around the whole uh, 1920, uh, 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 last year's Cup, uh, European Cup final was actually based on what we thought we were going to expect because of the Hills for Lies and Smears. So that's how the police's mindset was based. So all what I'm talking about from a Hillsborough oh, police... I don't know about that, Ian. And if you do, then I'll have to bow to your knowledge. I, I would suspect that we as British fans... It's in the report. Well, OK, so what, Ian. What, 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 as, I ju- as I just said, Ian, I c- I'll have to bow to your knowledge. I would also suspect that when it comes to policing of English fans, whether it be Liverpool fans, whether it be... Um, Manchester United fans, whether whichever club it is, English football has earned its reputation to some extent because of some of the behaviour of our fans. So I imagine that the pricing in of how people behave towards our fans is as a result of our own behaviour. But the point I've tried to make is not to condone UEFA. UEFA's uh, UEFA's attitude towards events is clearly not good enough. Mm. They're delegating to the wrong people. But ultimately, yeah. on the event, once once that once that event has been delegated to, you would expect those that have put money, or put bids up to be able to host these events that have illustrated in the past that they're capable of doing it, that they would have the prerequisite wherewithal to be able to manage them. And whilst I agree in principle that ultimately people should be accountable for it, to suggest that someone at, at, at five o'clock in an afternoon is now going to get in front of something and make any difference is probably more about optics. And I understand why you're doing it, but the reality of it, having run football clubs and seen events get up, hand i know that once they're out of hand you're not getting them back okay ian Byrne, mp for labor mp for liverpool and west Derby. thank you very much indeed jimmy's a liverpool fan that this problem was happening hours before kickoff they had hours to coordinate a solution to the problem and they didn't do it we'll keep the pressure on uefa download stand well back 
Listen, Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. In he comes at six minutes past 12 noon. The diminutive but the extremely effective Spencer Oliver has arrived upon us. Uh, Spencer, Thursday lunchtime. That means we're going to be talking boxing. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jim. And I nearly got put on a seat in my pants there before the show even started with Mr. Jordan, who thought it was funny to pull my chair away. Oh, how yes. is that chair? Put yes. me on the back foot straight away. was too high for you in yeah. the first place. <laughs> now, the other voice you're hearing in the background is the chief executive of Boxer, and he is Ben Shalom. Ben, it is good to see you, my friend. How goes it? You get yourself a holiday, which amazes me. How did you yes. manage that? Oh, you know what? In the summer, we had a few weeks off. It was good. First one in in two years um, but it was it was nice to get away how would you describe this crazy industry you work in um, it's the wild west isn't it it's the last industry I think that operates like this and uh, it's crazy sometimes you're thinking what am I doing but we love it as well we love the chaos they do, you do love it I know you you, you work closely with Simon uh, who loves his boxing and of course this Saturday another big occasion because TalkSport brings you exclusive boxing commentary Caroline Dubois fights uh, Magali Rodriguez for the vacant IBO light world title, lightweight world title York Hall Bethnal Green um, Caroline coming back she's a bit of a star she not oh Unbelievable. I think she debuted last year. She's 22 years old. She's already the number one lightweight on box rec in the world. It's a phenomenal talent. Obviously worked with Clarissa Shields, Savannah Marshall, Tasha Jonas now. And those are fighters that, that have sort of Caroline's looked up to and, and, and been able to sort of try and emulate. But to be 22 years old, as I say, this doesn't happen very often. Katie Taylor and Tasha Jonas, I think we're in their 30s by the time they turned over. This is someone that... I believe is 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 going to take the sport to a new level, and with Katie Taylor coming to the end now in that same lightweight mm. division, this is a this is the girl to take the torch. This is the the talent that could take women's boxing and even further. And Ben, you've taken a bit of a gamble here with Rodriguez actually because she comes with a lot of experience. She's got she's got a good record. You know, she's a WBC silver champion. She's fought some of the best. She's actually drew with the 2016 lightweight Olympic champion. So she. She can fight, and she's got that Mexican all-out style where she comes forward, she swings her shots in. So it is a calculated gamble, isn't it, for um, Caroline, who's relatively inexperienced with only seven contests? No, it's a huge step up. This is a former world title challenger. This is someone that throws punches from all angles. But when you're Caroline Dubois, and when you've got that sort of ambition, it's very, very difficult for her to be tested unless she's fighting the very best. So number one against number three, as I say, in the world. Her first time headlining this age... I know she'll be dealing with a with some nerves this week. You know, it's a it's a it's a huge step up. But to to do what she wants to achieve in the sport, she has to take gambles. It reminds me a little bit of Adam Aziz, both with Shane McGuigan, both want to be challenged very early on, almost in a competition to as to who's going to be the the future, I guess, of the sport. Um, but yeah, big big test, and on Saturday night it will be a hell of a fight because Magali looks in incredible shape. Ben, I, I remember speaking to you before you embarked on this with box and whatnot. And you, you said to me quite openly, I think I can achieve things in this industry. Where does your achievements regards women's boxing specifically sit with you in that overall achievements effort of yours? I think it has to be number one. I think really, um, really, yeah, I think so. I think when you look at women's boxing and since all female tw- cards since twenty twelve, yeah. and and the, doing the first female British title with Lauren Price and the all female card that sold out the O two. 
I think it's not just me. It's the, the the board as well got behind it. Other promoters have got behind it. And you talk about women's sport and 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 tr- and the surgence of it. But in boxing, there is genuine interest. There's genuine fans. We see it in the numbers. We see it in the fighters coming through. And yeah, the talent now with Lauren Price and Carrie Sartingstall and Caroline Dubois and Fran Hennessy, who's Mick Hennessy's daughter, who will debut on Saturday night. For the first time, we're seeing strength and depth in the divisions. And uh, yeah, the sport is is a shining light, I think, with everything and the chaos that goes on in British boxing. I think women's boxing has, uh, has been definitely something to shout about. I reckon we've all been won over. If if we, indeed we had to be won over, Simon, by by the women's fight game. Um, well, there was an element of needing to win it over because there was an element of people not necessarily sure of the quality. Obviously, the days of Jane Couch have moved on. And, and we've now got to a stage where it is now becoming a commercially, economically sustainable part of the industry. It's a new frontier. And so with new frontiers, you break landscapes, you change the direction of people's thinking. And when you saw, different audience, very different audience, but when we saw the event between Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall, very different audience, but the in- engagement, the interest, the level, it's very interesting that we are at the centre of it in this country. Mm. The Americans are having to come mm. here. It's normally what happens is, we put aside the Middle Eastern phenomenon, but normally when you go to the capital of boxing, it's somewhere in America, and all the money's there. Yet we are the lightning rod yeah. for women's yeah. boxing. Clarissa Shields needs to come here. Um, uh, the young lady that fought Savannah Marshall the other day needed to come here to be able to make their financial landscape more brighter. So I think it's great, and there's lots of things with, with women's boxing, and Carolyn Dubois is undoubtedly... A potential star, a well, real star. Ben, undoubtedly, she's shone a light on her own sport, but she's also, if you like, opened up a bit of a can of worms as well, because she says she's been left shocked by a lack of drugs testing. Um, she's been tested once since she turned pro last year. This comes at a time that in the men's fight game, Dillian White, Hellenius, and then in the women's fight game, Boom Garner. But back with the men's corner, Ben, all returned tests with adverse analytical findings. Why has she only been tested once? Look, clearly there is a there is a drug drug problem in the sport. I think everyone can agree that testing is, is there's a complete lack of testing in the sport. There's a complete lack of regular testing and frequent testing. The problem I have with it all is we can only have one testing authority it's we have to have a strong independent body in this country that governs the sport and the point is they aren't resourced well enough to actually test the fighters this is a major sport now this is a sport that is invested in by three major broadcasters in this country yet the governing authority doesn't have the resources required to test these elite athletes that's the biggest problem so here who should I think it? but it should be the promoters but the broadcasters the board should be receiving appropriate funding to be able to do that. There's a lot of money in the sport. Appropriate funding needs to go to the board to be able to do that. The worst thing that can happen is the promoters become the governing authority and promoters take it into their own hands. We are speaking to the board at the moment. We we think we can make a few changes in the next two or three months alone to make sure that they have more resource, to make sure that you can contest regularly because they're the ones that can do something about it. The worst thing is is a fighter failing a test and no one knows, you know, that you get jurisdiction problems. No one knows how to deal with it. It causes yeah. absolute chaos. chaos. And it brings the sport into disrepute. And You're shaking your head, Simon, right? You know, no, I'm agreeing. We all know that the UK testing regime is not fit for purpose for the, box, for the sport of boxing. But testing is only done... Resource. But testing is only done... 
by the way, you know, when you get to that when you get to that level where you're boxing for titles, etc., etc. Caroline Dubois, you know, she's she's only been tested yeah, once because she's been boxing, you know, over to, over four the, rounds, the, over the six rounds. The cost implications of testing and the reality of it is that you're never going to be able to test all the fighters at all levels sure. on a regular basis I because it would be. But why was she regularly tested as an amateur fighter? It, it is cost. That's what she said. It is cost. You know, you're talking about every test costing about £500. And so when you've got thousands and thousands of boxers that potentially need to be tested to really stamp it out multiple times a week, no one can do that. No one can afford to do that. What is clear is that the fighters at the top level, even at the top level, aren't being tested enough, which is what has caused the chaos of other testing authorities and other businesses, really private yes. businesses, yeah. saying, yeah. you know what, we're going to... We're going to take this on and we're going to make money, whether it's VADA. They, they started because of a lack of and, testing. And then it becomes and, a messy blame game. And then it becomes a game. messy, messy situation. I mean, you, you've stuck to your guns, Simon, with a very strong principle about the aftermath of the Conor Ben situation, and you have not budged on that. Because you can't really, can you? Because you can't overcome a failed drugs test by citing jurisdiction. And that is why I made the comment about Ben's fight recently, not condoning that there shouldn't, should, there shouldn't be VADA testing, but suggesting that the reasons why I wouldn't be that and that bothered about VADA testing is because Conor Ben's legal team have just overturned the jurisdiction of VADA testing and shown that UCAD, because we all know that VADA testing doesn't have an outcome attached to it. It just has a reporting process. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind... The idea that VADA testing, which is the gold standard for testing, which most people accept and perhaps does more than the current UCAD testing regime does, but it's very, very expensive and it won't fit into the current economic model of boxing unless they're going to change this economic model and broadcasters will have to come to the table. Otherwise, they'll start losing events. What do they want? Do they want to lose a big event because a fighter tests positive on the eve of that fight? Or do they want to be able to prepare for not having those situations by having more investment in place that stops people from doing the thing in the first yeah, place? Yeah, sure. Oh, well, Dubois against uh, Rodriguez live in TalkSport this Saturday night from York Hall. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, TalkSport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show.